May I call you to order, please? If you haven't found a seat, find one. Well, it's a delight to welcome all of you to this evening session on the Wednesday of our conference. It's been good for us to have been here, and we're delighted this evening that our president, Dr. Jonathan Master, will address us on the subject of humility. There are two important things you should know about Jonathan, really three, but the third one perhaps is a little inconsequential. But the first one is his doctorate is from one of the ancient universities of Scotland. He recognized that there was no educational establishment in America <laughs> worthy of his abilities. Although we discovered this afternoon that one of his reasonably recent forebears sued Gresham Machen. Now, if we had known that before we appointed him, <laughs> we're delighted um, that Jonathan will minister to us this evening. As most of you, probably all of you know, he is the president of our seminary. Uh, Jonathan followed an esteemed and well-loved president in Joy Piper. And I'm sure um, he and everyone else was wondering, how will he fill those shoes? Well, the Lord always raises up the men that he would have to fill shoes. And Jonathan has done that, and the Lord has blessed his leadership in the seminary this past couple of years. I've known Jonathan for 15 or so years. Uh, he gave Joan and I a wonderful tour of the graveyard in Princeton. He knows all about uh, the graves of Princeton. Um, but I, I've known Jonathan uh, for 15 or so years, uh, increasingly come to um, value him as a, a dear friend. And one of the qualities that I think suits him in the goodness of God to lead the life of the seminary is that he understands that the Christian life is to be lived coram deo, before the face of God. That's the kind of leadership that we desire. It's the kind of leadership we want to instill in the students that we train under God. We want them to be young men who live before the face of God, who understand that ministry is lived out not before the face of man and certainly not in the fear of man, but lived before the gracious, sovereign, majestic, almighty and glorious face of God. Fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. 
If you want to know more about Jonathan, you can read the bio. I presume you can read. I'm never a great believer in just reiterating what's on the programme, so you can read more. But we're delighted that Jonathan will minister to us this evening on the subject of humility. Just one um, notice. Uh, over the past many years that the seminary has held this conference, um, we have wanted to promote uh, a very significant conference for young men and women from grade 10 uh, through to college years. It's the Biblical Worldview Student Conference uh, organized and held by our dear friends in Kingsport, Tennessee. And I hope you will make the time to look at the booth that um, Debbie and Dell will be manning and womaning. <laughs> See how culturally adaptable I am. Uh, yeah. Um, it's being held May 30th to, to June 4th. Now, I can commend this personally because three years ago, uh, Jonah and I were there. We had a wonderful week. Um, the young people uh, were keen, keen to learn. Um, the range of uh, ministry was stunning, actually. And rather than tell you who will be there, do pick up one of these leaflets. And if you are a young person here tonight, grade 10 to college years, if you have children of that age in your church, find out about this conference it really is a significant conference that helps to shape the minds and hearts of young people. So, with that out of the way, we're here to worship our God. We'll sing together the Psalm number 98, section A, and then... There will be, uh, will remain standing, and there will be an offering, and then we will sing a second selection, Psalm 147a. So first of all, uh, Psalm 98a, or sing a new song to the Lord, we will remain standing while an offering uh, for this, the, the work of the conference will be received.
remain standing and we'll sing Psalm 147, the section A, and during the psalm we will take up an offering. So, oh. 241. 241. Let me see what that is to see whether we want to sing it or not. <laughs> 241. Oh, wonderful. Thanks, Ted.
We bow, ever-blessed God, before the majesty of your glory. We bow to confess with angels and with archangels, with your saints in all the earth, that there is none like unto you, O Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory. You do great wonders. You are the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are from everlasting and you are too everlasting. And you are enthroned above the heavens and all heaven declares your glory. And we bow in your presence. We bow to acknowledge that only through Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, can we draw near to you tonight. We acknowledge afresh that our hope rests alone in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is only in him and through him that we come before you now. And we bless you that we come to a God full of grace, full of tender mercy, sovereign and glorious and exalted indeed, but gentle and lowly of heart. We come, Lord, in our need before you. We come acknowledging, confessing our weakness, our failure, our sin, but laying hold of you afresh in your grace and through faith. Meet with us, Lord, in our need, we pray. We thank you for Jonathan. We ask you to grant him your gracious promised help. May he be wonderfully enabled of the Lord to minister to us out of your word. Speak, Lord, to him, and through him speak to us, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Let your bright beams arise. Dispel the darkness from our minds and open all our eyes. Hear us, gracious God. Forgive and cleanse us from all our sin. And we ask it through Jesus Christ, our risen our reigning and our returning King. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, I'll begin reading in verse 35 of that chapter, go through verse 45. Mark 10, beginning at verse 35, going through verse 45. Remember, as I read, as you follow along and listen, that what we're hearing, this is the word of God. Mark 10, beginning in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, 
one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, once more we come before you asking for your help. We rejoice in your word. We thank you that you've entrusted us with it. We know that it is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and that your spirit accompanies your word with power and your word will not return to you void but will accomplish what you purpose. We know that your word is profitable for reproof and for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We know these things, and yet we do ask that as we open your word, you would give us ears to hear, you would soften our hearts, that today if we hear your voice, we would not harden our hearts, but your spirit would do his work in our midst. We pray that you would do this, and in so doing, we ask that you would glorify your son in our midst. And we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. I want to begin by giving a little little context to this address and how it fits in the theme of light in the darkness. When we began to think through the conference as a whole, we knew that there were a number of elements to this topic, a number of things that that needed to be covered. And and indeed, uh, it's been... Exciting to watch how the Lord has worked in his providence and bringing all these things to bear in these last two days. We have heard polemical addresses that that recognize and diagnose the many ways in which the world assaults us and tries to deceive us. We've heard historical examples of pilgrims from the past and how God has worked through his pilgrim people in the past in the midst of very dark, very difficult times. We've been reminded at every turn of God's overwhelming love for his people in Christ. And we've been reminded of what it means to be set apart, to be holy unto him. But we didn't want to let this week go by without recognizing that the substance of our work matters a great deal, but but the manner of our work is also addressed for us in Scripture with crystal clarity. 
The logic of this is something like the logic of 1 Corinthians 13. You remember in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul defines love. He says that love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. In other words, love is not proud. Love is humble. But prior to that, the Apostle Paul says, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And the same logic obtains with this subject this evening. St. Augustine, I was reminded of this right before I came up, was asked, what are the three Christian virtues. And his response was, humilitas, humilitas, humilitas. This is true for everyone. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, when he begins to instruct the Ephesian church, and indeed all believers, on what it means to live out the implications of their salvation. He says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with Humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. The Bible gives blanket statements to all Christians such as this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This isn't only something that we find in the New Testament instructions to believers. It's something that we see in the Old Testament, not only by example, but by direct instruction. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, when the prophet is giving his final sermon to the people of God, the Lord says to his people, to this one I will look, to the one who is humble, contrite of heart. And who trembles at my word. The Bible also teaches us that not only does this apply to all Christians. But it is particularly applicable to those involved in pastoral ministry. We might think for instance of Paul's instructions to the Ephesian elders. Recorded for us in Acts 20. Paul says this. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And how does he describe his living in their midst in Asia? Serving the Lord with all humility. J.C. Ryle has put it this way. Humility is a grace which has always been the distinguishing feature in the character of the holiest saints in every age. He goes on to list Abraham and Moses and Job and David and Daniel and Paul. And he says... All of them were eminently humble men. John Stott puts it this way. At every stage of Christian development, every stage, whether you're a new Christian, or whether the Lord saved you decades ago, at every stage of Christian development, and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy, and humility is our greatest friend. But as with love in the New Testament, we are always in danger of misdefining these important biblical words. There is a kind of false humility. 
We see it in the first century, and we certainly see it today. There are all kinds of counterfeit humilities on offer. Ways that appear humble. Manners of life that may pose as humility, but are in fact pride in disguise. We don't want a false, sub-Christian version of this important virtue. Vahamas Abrakel puts it this way when he tells us that humility, real humility, not the fake, fraudulent kind, real humility must come from God. Here's how he puts it. God is the moving cause of true humility. By nature, man is a creature who aspires after glory, is proud and conceited and has high thoughts of himself. He is motivated by self, is focused on self, and is desirous that everyone's end would be to esteem, honor, fear, serve, and obey him. But then he goes on to talk about what the Lord does. The heart the Lord gives to his people is different, however, for he causes Christ to be formed in them. Even if we take a step back and look at our theme, light in the darkness, this is a phrase taken from the Sermon on the Mount, and you remember the very first words of that sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this not only sets the stage for the rest of that sermon, because the precondition of saving faith is to be humbled, but it also frames everything that Jesus emphasizes about how we're to live as lights in the darkness. Humility, humility, humility. Now that brings us to this text. Mark 10, 35 to 45. This text has to record one of the great misunderstandings in all of the Gospels, really in all of Scripture. If you read back just before verse 35 to give a little context, you see what's, uh, what James and John are responding to in verse 35. Jesus says this, look back at verse 33. See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, I wish I could stand up here and tell you that there's something complicated about the Greek that Jesus is using. Or ambiguous about that terminology. But there's nothing complicated or ambiguous. It's crystal clear. And yet look at the response of the disciples. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, not only is that an astonishing misunderstanding, almost unthinkable response, where James and John, we might take them aside and say, Read the room. Listen to the words he just said to you. He talked about mocking and flogging and spitting and you're asking that your selfish desires might be fulfilled through him. This is compounded by the fact that in Mark's gospel, this is the third time Jesus has says the, said these words directly to them. We see it back in chapter 8, where Jesus addresses them in Caesarea. 
and says virtually the same thing we read in verses 33 and 34. And then, and then he does it again in Galilee. Virtually the same words, equal clarity. And then here in Judea, a third and final time, he says it again. And James and John say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now this misunderstanding of James and John, this, this colossal misreading of Jesus and misunderstanding of themselves is really in two parts. The first part is addressed by Jesus and it has to do with their fundamental misunderstanding of the cross of Jesus Christ. You see what Jesus responds to them. First, he asks what they want, and they tell him what they want in verse 37. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But the way Jesus corrects them in verse 38 is by reminding them, by, by in a sense, drilling down on the significance and necessity of the cross. Although he had been crystal clear, this was something that they, they seemingly couldn't understand, couldn't fit into their read on the world. It didn't fit their perception of themselves or their perception of him or their perception of their plight. And so what Jesus says in verse 38 is more about the cross. Now, at a certain level, we might understand something of the disciples missing the cross. After all, Peter says in 1 Peter 1 that the prophets of old, the prophets who prophesied, he says, about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, the prophets, as they prophesied about suffering and then prophesied about glory, didn't understand how to fit those things together. And so they carefully inquired as to how those things fit together. And what the Spirit of Christ in them told them was that they weren't serving themselves, but they were serving us. So we can understand at some level the confusion of the disciples. But what we know is that this wasn't just a failure on their part of fitting together the suffering and the glory. In fact, they were focused entirely on the glory and entirely on their participation in the glory, and they ignored entirely the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember what Wilhelmus Abrakel says, man is by nature a creature who aspires after glory. This is what we see from James and John. They, they were so aspiring after glory. They, they, were, they were so interested in grabbing something for themselves that they entirely missed everything Jesus and the Old Testament had taught them about the cross. He is motivated by self and focused on self and is desirous that everyone's end would be to esteem, honor, fear, serve and obey him. Now, interestingly enough, there is a contemporary application of all this. You see this missing of the cross, the absence of the cross in many liberal theologies, even of the past 200 years. Richard Niebuhr famously said this about Protestant liberalism. 
It was called modernism in his day. And he said, what it is about, its creed is this, a God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without the cross. And what that's grounded upon is a certain view of oneself. It's a certain view that others should be serving me. That I need to aspire after glory. That I need to be motivated by self and everyone else should be motivated for myself. I think it's a warning for us today. We may not be persuaded by the contentions of Protestant liberalism. We may not have the same kind of blindness as the disciples in Jesus' day. But we are always in danger of downplaying the cross of Jesus Christ. Maybe through inattention. You know, the Apostle Paul said this about his ministry to the Corinthians. I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For those of you who are ministers, would that be said of you? Would you be able to declare that of yourself? Would others recognize you in that description? I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and and him crucified. Or how about what Paul says about his entire Christian life? This would be not just for ministers, but for all those who name the name of Christ. Paul puts it this way when he describes what it means to be a Christian. I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Ultimately, when we look at ourselves, and when we even compare ourselves to the disciples, we realize we very often do downplay or even ignore altogether the cross of Jesus Christ. And what does that show in us? What does that reveal about us? Well, it reveals the same thing that it reveals of these disciples. A focus on self. An elevated view of our own worth, our own significance. We don't need the cross of Christ. Because we ourselves just want this kind of temporal glory. And we see this connection in the exchange that Jesus has with the disciples in verse 38. Jesus knows what's really at work under the surface. It's not simply that they've made an exegetical error and they haven't understood the promises of the crucifixion. It's that they were so focused on what they wanted from Jesus that they ignored the cross. And this is why Jesus turns them to it with, if possible, even greater clarity than before. Look at what he says in verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, in using these images of drinking the cup and being baptized with the baptism with which he is baptized, Jesus, again, is drawing on potent images from the Old Testament prophets. Drinking the cup of God's wrath is a, is a common Old Testament figure for the judgment of God. 
We see this in the Psalms, like Psalm 78, 75. We see it in Ezekiel 23. We see it in Isaiah 51. It's a, it's a metaphor that's used in the Old Testament to describe the suffering of the wicked under the judgment of God. And Jesus, as it were, front loads this on them and says to them, you, you don't understand what you're overlooking and you certainly don't understand what it means to identify yourselves with me. What I'm going to go through is, is, the cu- is enduring the cup of God's wrath. I'm going to be baptized with a baptism which you can hardly imagine. Now the disciples blithely say in verse 39 that they're able to do this. They seem still not to understand because they're so consumed with themselves. They say, we are able. And Jesus goes on to promise them that in fact they will endure similar sufferings to him in verse 39. But still, verse 40, to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And then we get... Below the surface, we start to see what the disciples were really all about, why it was that they overlooked the cross, when we see the response of the ten. In verse 41, we read that the ten, the other ten, heard about that conversation, heard about this request of James and John's. And when they hear what James and John have been asking, Instead of recognizing the error in what they had asked, they instead went in on it. They began to be indignant at James and John. They're indignant because each of them was thinking the same thing. No, I should be the one at his right, or I should be the one at his left in his glory. All of them, to a man, were looking past the cross and simply thinking of themselves. And so Jesus addresses them at the issue of humility. Jesus says this, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Now it's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't say that greatness is not to be pursued at all. What in fact he says is that they have totally misunderstood what greatness really looks like. They didn't recognize it. They didn't recognize it. They didn't know what it was. Their definition, according to verse 42, was based on the world's definition. Jesus uses this terminology, lording it over. The Gentiles lorded over those under their authority. It's the same word, incidentally, that's used in Acts 19 of a, a, a demon-possessed man who, who has this great strength and overpowers all those around them. And Jesus says, that's how it works in the Gentile world. That's what greatness looks like among the Gentiles. This is how the world's system works. And you know this. You know that if you have money, you, you expect.
expect to receive great deference. We want it because we want others to do for us. It's interesting to read presidential biographies, biographies of these men who've had great power in our nation. Almost every presidential biography I've ever read comments on what is called the Oval Office Effect. And the Oval Office Effect is simply this, that when people walk into the Oval Office, they suddenly become deferential. They may have had great plans to get in the face of the president, but they walk in there and they see the desk and they look around at the portraits and suddenly they they know that they're under authority. This is how authority works in the world. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And we have to admit today that we all understand how the world system works and and, and most of us, at some level, at least have to fight the impulse of wanting in on that system. We want more so that we don't have to deal with the mundane problems of the world. We want to be able to get what we want when we want it from other people. We become impatient and, and petty and, and, and difficult to be around when, when we're not getting what we want from others whether it's in our small corner of the home or in our churches or in our workplace or among our friends, we, we crave that subtle pleasure of overpowering, of lording over our authority. We actually can become, particularly in our circles, very good at hiding this. We, so we spend time thinking of ways that we can manipulate other people so that we are getting what we want, but it doesn't look like we're pulling rank on them all the time. This is the way the world works today. James identifies relational conflict as one of the symptoms of this. You might think about your own life and think about the kind of conflict that it often ensues in your close relationships. Well, here's what James says. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James goes on to say, Why are there quarrels and fights among you? Your passions are at war within you. He goes on to say, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And as we look at ourselves and our hearts and our context and our world, we can hardly even imagine any other way of operating. What other way is there than having authority and lording it over others? Well, in the middle of verse 43, Jesus introduces an alternative. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Now, this is a word that doesn't strike our ears in the way that it would have with these first disciples. <clears throat> Jesus uses a word, diakonos, which in the Greek language uh, refers to a, a table waiter, a, a kind of errand boy. It's someone who's at the, the low 
end of the totem pole. It's someone who has to do what others don't want to do. In fact, C.S. Lewis has said that in his analysis, this is the first known use in Greek of this term diakonos in a positive way. Diakonos was never something one aspired to. It was something that you wanted to get out of as soon as you could so that you could have someone to serve you. What does the Lord say? Whoever would be great must be your servant. It's striking to see the revolution that ensues in the New Testament after Jesus speaks these words. One of the reasons why the word servant or even the word diakonos doesn't strike us the way it would have struck them is because from this point forward in the New Testament, it's almost always used positively. So Paul takes this word diakonos to describe himself in 1 Corinthians 3. He uses it to describe Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. It's used to describe Phoebe. It's used to describe the deacons. There's an office in the church that has this label. It's used to describe the Old Testament prophets. It's even used to describe secular rulers. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And Jesus Jesus goes on in verse 44 to use a word that is even more striking. And this one does strike us much as it would have struck them. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. Now, whatever you want to say about first century slavery in the Greco-Roman world, it is true that there were slaves who had educated roles. There were slaves who did menial work, but there were slaves who did very, very significant work for their masters. But, But the fact is this, whatever role a slave had, he didn't own his own time. He didn't own his own life. He was under the authority of someone else. Gerhard Kittel, the great German uh, philologist, said this, The meaning is so unequivocal and self-contained that it is superfluous to give examples of the individual terms or to trace the history of the group. In other words, we don't even have to analyze it. It's so obvious everywhere what it means. Hence, we have a service which is not a matter of choice for the one who renders it which he has to perform whether he likes it or not, because he is subject as a slave to an alien will, to the will of an owner. Jesus says, I know how it works in the world. It shall not be so among you. Whoever's going to be great must be a servant. Whoever would be first must be the slave of all. This is true greatness. Now, now again, we have to acknowledge the cognitive dissonance here. We can read these words, but we need to think about them in our context. This is precisely contrary to what our culture tells us. I was recently reading an article in Psychology Today. And here's what it says. Our highest calling in life is to lovingly care for ourselves. We see this in advertising. You want it your way, right away. We see it in politics. 
We see it in the political process, and we see it in the way politicians advertise themselves to us. It's about you. It's about what you want. It's about you getting what you want, even at the expense of others. This even seeps into pop theology. Very famously, when President Obama was serving in his second term, he was asked how he would define sin. And he said, quite notably, sin is what doesn't match my values. Because our highest calling in life is to lovingly care for ourselves. Now, when this takes root in your heart, you will, you will see it bear fruit, not only in overt displays of pride, although there are many overt displays of pride that we see, but in, but in a subtle push, which we all feel, to put down others in order to elevate ourselves. We see it in the constant conflict we have with others. Because bitterness seeps in when others don't recognize all the things that we've done for them and all the ways in which they should be serving us. You want to make sure that everyone knows all the sacrifices and all of your gifts to them. And, and they never quite do acknowledge it. And you hate them for it. This is the way pride can take root in our hearts. Pride also, the scripture tells us, takes root and bears fruit in the form of anxiety about the future. This is why Peter, when he's addressing Christians, tells them that they're to be anxious about nothing. And he goes on to say they need to cast their cares upon the Lord. And then, and then he goes on to tie it together by repeating this phrase, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Because Peter knew that anxiety about the future was rooted in a, in, in a selfish sense of pride that I ought to be in control of what's going to happen. But, but at some level, I know I'm not. And so it creates this kind of anxiousness. I want us to think about that phrase. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride, which so easily takes root in our heart and bears fruit in all kinds of ways, is something that God repeatedly says he opposes. Have you considered the seriousness of that? God is the everlasting creator of all things. The sovereign king of heaven and earth. Imagine... Imagine a scenario where God is opposed to you in your relationships. He's against you. Where God is opposed to you in your work. Where God is opposed to you in your ministry. If your church, if this seminary is proud, then we should based on Scripture, fear the opposition of God, not just the indifference of God toward those who are proud, the opposition of God toward those who are proud. Because God opposes the proud. 
So then the question we must address at the end of verse 44 is if God is opposed to the proud, and if pride so easily takes root and bears fruit in multifaceted ways, how do we cultivate its opposite? Humility, humility, humility. One good answer, one good biblical answer, is by reflecting on the greatness and majesty of God. John Owen speaks of humility, and he gives two, uh, two cures for it. First, he says, be much in thoughtfulness of the excellency of the majesty of God and thine infinite, inconceivable distance from him. And then he goes on to say this, think much of thine unacquaintedness with him. We see this borne out, of course, in the account of the call of Isaiah recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 6. You remember, of course, that when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and seated on the throne with the train of his robe filling the temple, he said, woe is me, I am ruined. He was humbled by his confrontation with the majesty of God. And this is a very important biblical place that we must start. We have far too low a view of God in our day. I've referred in previous sermons and addresses, in fact, very frequently, to David Wells' 1993 book, No Place for Truth, which the Lord used in profound way in my own life. And he identified this as precisely the problem in the church. He wrote, It is this God, majestic and holy in his being, who has disappeared from the modern evangelical world. He has been replaced in many quarters by a God who is slick and slack, whose moral purposes turn out to be avuncular advice that we can disregard or negotiate as we see fit, whose word is a plaything for those who wish merely to listen to themselves, whose church is a mall in which the religious do their business. We seek happiness, not righteousness. We want to be fulfilled, not filled. We are interested in satisfaction, not a holy dissatisfaction with all that is wrong. In other words, God rests lightly upon us. And that is true. We might, based on this context, also even go a step beyond that turning our thoughts to the humility of Christ. You remember what the Apostle Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. In verse 45 of this chapter, Jesus combines both of these things. 
He combines for us a renewed vision of the majesty of God. And he shows us more clearly the purpose of the incarnation of the Son of God. After commanding his followers about greatness, he says this, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now this phrase, Son of Man, is a remarkable phrase from the Old Testament. It's a phrase which we see in Daniel 7. When the Son of Man comes in glory on the clouds from heaven to defeat his enemies and the enemies of his people and to to rescue them from tribulation. And Jesus identifies himself with this glorious picture in the Old Testament. The Son of Man, this great one to come. But then he says this, the Son of Man, the glorious one, the God-man himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to live his, give his life a ransom for many. We see here the great glory of Christ on display and also the purpose of the incarnation, which culminates in the mystery of Christ's cross. The Son of Man and the death of the Son of Man. Archibald Alexander says, the cross is a center in which many lines of truth meet. It is an incomprehensible mystery that God should be manifest in the flesh, that the prince of life should be crucified. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many, the center in which many lines of truth meet. The cross shows us, surely, the true nature of our humanity. By nature, man is a creature who aspires after glory, is proud and conceited, and has high thoughts of himself, motivated by self, focused on self, desirous that everyone's end would be to esteem, honor, fear, serve, and obey him. And yet, it was necessary for the Son of Man to die on our behalf in order to reconcile us to a holy God. The cross shows us as well the opposition of God to the proud. God indeed does oppose the proud. And we see it as he pours out his wrath, the cup of his wrath, on our sin in his Son, the Son of Man, the Glorious One. On the cross, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the cross shows us true greatness. 
redefining forever what God values and who God considers first. The cross of Jesus Christ changes everything about how we view ourselves. And if you're here tonight, and as you consider before the Lord your own heart and your own actions and your own relationships and your own motivation, and and you realize that you, like the rulers of the Gentiles, are looking at authority as a way of lording it over others, filled with pride. The bad news is not simply that God opposes you, although He does. It's also the case that this will never satisfy you. There will always be others with more. You'll never have enough. Even if you consider yourself a Christian, your cravings will eat away at you. They'll cause continual conflicts in your relationship and continual anxiety in your life. No no church will be good enough. No ministry will value you enough. The commands of God will eventually get in your way. You'll see them as obstacles. You'll want to overlook them. Overlooking perhaps even the cross of Christ. But when we look at the cross, we see also glorious good news. Because the Bible teaches us that he gave himself for us to redeem us, as Jesus says here, from every lawless deed. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds, humbly desiring to serve others and to serve the Lord. This is the only answer. This is the only way off the treadmill of pride. The cross of Christ is the truth that that drives us to humility. A bigger view of God and a clearer understanding of the incarnation and sacrifice of Jesus provides us not only with the ultimate example of redefined greatness, but also the means by which acting in accord with this redefinition makes sense. Because in the cross of Christ... We see not only him by example serving us, but we, we see things like this. He was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we might become rich in him. He gave his life as a ransom, redeeming us from, from, uh, with peri- not, not with perishable things like silver or gold, from our feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers. He redeems us from that futility of pride. This this should reshape how we view not only ourselves individually, but even the shape of the church. How much of church life is shaped by selfish ambition and pride. Ministers who observe the work of others and instantly dismiss or gossip or criticize uh, we secretly hate the gift of, gifts of others because it means less greatness and authority for ourselves. We want recognition for that which we do. And in our lives as a whole, we can particularly look at our 
lives as, as, as fathers and mothers within the family. You know, there's an interesting note in Matthew's version of this account, an interesting detail that Mark omits. Do you know what it is? It's that James and John were sent to Jesus by their mother to ask this question. It's one thing to redefine greatness for yourself. But does this redefinition extend to your children and your grandchildren? You want them to leave behind the way of the rulers of the Gentiles. And instead, confronted with the glory and majesty of the crucified Son of God, to be the slaves of all. Look at the cross of Christ. Look at the Son of Man crucified as a ransom for you. God is the moving cause of humility. The heart the Lord gives to his people is different, for he causes Christ to be formed in them, so that in humility they resemble Christ. The Lord grants them enlightened eyes of understanding by which they know themselves, says Abrakel. So consider others better than yourself because you know that Christ is all in all. Commit yourself to this redefined greatness of which Jesus speaks. The greatness of service, of, of slavery to others, and ultimately to Christ. Pride is your greatest enemy at every stage, and humility your greatest friend. And true humility only comes from knowing God in Jesus Christ based upon his saving work. You know these words well. But they summarize the logic of this text. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my heart, my all. Let's pray together. Our great God, we do ask that you would kill in us the pride that so naturally rests in our hearts. We ask that you would do so by confronting us once again with the glory of the cross of Christ. We pray that he would be glorified in our lives and that our objective in our work would be to lift him up.
And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, please do stand as we close our evening session. We sing hymn 425, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place.
brothers and sisters, lift up your heads and open your eyes and receive by faith the blessing of the triune God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, give you his peace. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.